for today, we're going to look at uh, Module 1, Session 10. We're going to look at the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is very interesting because it is one of the biggest excuses that unbelievers use to reject our faith and to make, uh, make judgment calls about God that are untrue. And we'll look at that uh, when we get to some interpretive issues. But let's pray and then let's walk through the book of Joshua together. Our Father, thank you for uh, this time to be together What a great holiday season, Lord, when we um, not only get to celebrate and think upon the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we also now get to look ahead to the new year and to uh, determine, Lord, that we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in a way that maybe is even more pleasing to you than the previous year. Lord, we know that uh, this particular year has been a difficult one for everyone, and I think uh, no new year has been more anticipated uh, in, in quite some time. And so we would ask for your blessing and your kindness in this coming new year. But for this morning, Lord, as we look through the book of Joshua, I pray it would be a blessing to those who hear. And I pray that we would know you and worship you more as a result. May you be bigger, more vast, more awesome in our eyes because of our study this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at Joshua. <clears throat> and what I'd like to do is, is just give you a brief introduction to what are called the former prophets. Um, we don't divide our Bible this way, but the, the uh, Jews do. The Jewish Bible has three divisions. Uh, the Torah, the former prophets, and the latter prophets. The, the Torah, you already know. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers... Deuteronomy, you you get that. Um, The former prophets give a continuous history of Israel through the eyes of the prophets. And so they're very historical in nature, but they are uh, written by prophets. And why would we call Joshua a prophet? Well, he receives the word of God. He leads uh, the people of Israel. And so he fulfills that prophetic function because he is uh, in the footsteps of Moses as well. And then the latter prophets, they're the ones that indict the law-breaking Israel. They indict uh, Judah, but they also predict Yahweh's future restoration of Israel. So the former prophets kind of get us to a point, and the latter prophets tell us how Israel failed to that point. And so it's a useful division. It's not how we normally think of our Bibles, um, but honestly, I, I wish our English Bibles in our table of contents divided it this way. I think it would be useful. So the former prophets, you have uh, Joshua, Judges, and then uh, Samuel and Kings. Remember in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel and Kings are just one book each. Uh, the English Bible divides it into two each. And then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have the 12 uh, in there as well. Uh, and I'm not sure where Daniel went. Daniel should be in there uh, also. So uh, that got left out. But uh, the Torah, former prophets, latter prophets. And if you, if you talk to a Jew who knows his Old Testament, uh, that's how they think about uh, their Bible. So let's look at just the book itself, at Joshua now. The Hebrew title, Yeshua, or Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. And this sounds very familiar to us. Um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is simply called Iesus. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Joshua, Jesus, it's the same name, different languages. Um, So interestingly, we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but uh, when Joshua met the angel of the Lord in Joshua chapter 5, Jesus was meeting Jesus, so to speak. And so uh, very significant there. The author is unknown. Uh, the best guess we have is that it's Joshua himself. By the way, when, when we don't know a biblical author, there's one really good reason for that. God didn't want us to know. Um, he didn't need us to know. And so um, we don't need to worry about that. That doesn't mean we're lacking for some reason. There are good reasons to know authors and perhaps good reasons not to know authors. But the best guess is that it's Joshua himself. Um, we know the dates almost precisely of this particular book. It goes from the death of Moses, 1406 B.C., that's chapter 1, verse 1, right there, to the death of the elders associated with Joshua, and we know that was about 1375 B.C. So it doesn't uh, doesn't take a long time to get through Joshua. Now, in Joshua, generally speaking, 
it's very refreshing to us because overall, Israel is more obedient than they are disobedient. And so reading Joshua is pretty refreshing, particularly as you continue on. Once you get into Judges, that flip-flops completely. And so Joshua is refreshing. They're still, uh, they're still young. Uh, they're still eager. Uh, the book of Joshua, let me put it this way, is like a, a church plant. Uh, I've been involved with some church plants, both doing one and also helping uh, numbers of men. And there's always that initial excitement and that initial joy and, and everybody's on the same page. Then you finish the honeymoon period and you have the core group of the, of the uh, church plant that generally splits in two. Those who want to continue on growing the ministry and those who become difficult. Um, that happens frequently. And so uh, in the training that I get to do with men, we try to mitigate that as much as possible. But this is in the honeymoon period. This is where things are going fairly well for Joshua. and Or in the book of Joshua, Israel is more obedient than they are disobedient. What are the themes? And these are not... Um, these are not hard obviously the main theme is the land and so we'll we'll emphasize this with a couple of different views here Um, the land we could divide this into three areas the land that is conquered chapter six seven and eight we see the central part of the land being conquered and i think we should note here that the canaanites never surrendered they never surrendered even though they were vastly outnumbered Joshua 11.20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Why did the Canaanites never surrender? Because it was not God's will for them to surrender. They were to be destroyed. Then you have the land remaining. It was up to the individual tribes of Israel to finish the job of driving out the Canaanites, driving, out of their, driving them out of their individual territories. And the key verse here is Joshua 18.3. And let me tell you, the key verse in the last one, the land conquered, is Joshua 11.20. I didn't see that on this slide. Joshua 11.20. The land remaining, the key verse is Joshua 18.3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. So the whole land is conquered, but there's still a lot of land that remains to be possessed, to actually be taken. And so then that brings us to the third sub-theme under the land, and that is the failure to conquer. Key verse here is Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sorry, the people of Israel could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, that's written from the present tense standpoint, probably of Joshua. Uh, ironically, what is supposed to be the capital city of the whole Bible is Jerusalem. And the one place they didn't drive people out were the Jebusites. And eventually, uh, who would do that? David would take care of that. So you have the land conquered, the land remaining, and the failure to conquer. And well, that's quite an interpretive issue, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. Then you have the possession and dispossession of the land. A little bit different view here, how to think about this. Israel was to take possession of the land from the Canaanite tribes. And this is important. This wasn't just a, this wasn't just a sweeping through the land and destroying everything in sight. There was a possession that was supposed to happen. First key verse here is Joshua 3.10. Joshua said, how, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So they're supposed to drive them out. It's, and the idea here is devoting them to destruction and, and the rest can run away. But here's the interesting thing. This is why we talk about dispossession and possession. Almost every battle in the book of Joshua takes place in open fields. There's only three actual cities that were destroyed. Jericho, Ai, we say Ai, but Ai is a pro- more proper pronunciation. Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. Because Why is it only the three cities were destroyed? Well, the goal from God was to take over the land, not to destroy it. This was their home. Now, this is sort of like, you know, if you're invading your own home, you're not going to go set fire to the place and then go, yay, we win. You want to drive out the inhabitants. Joshua chapter 5, the manna stops. 
And now Israel is to live off the land. So this is to be theirs. And we'll get to the ethics of this here shortly. So you have the land, you have the dispossession and possession of the land, and then you have the law. The law becomes a major theme in Joshua because how are the law and the land connected? If Israel wants to have blessing in the land, then they will obey the law. Joshua 1.7, the Lord tells Joshua, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And so we might refer you back also to Deuteronomy chapter 28, right before the conquest, where the Lord uh, gives Israel this ultimatum. And the ultimatum is, if you obey my law, I will bless you in ways that are absolutely unbelievable. If you don't obey, then you get like dozens and dozens of verses of all the curses that are going to come upon them. And so the law and the land are connected. This is uh, an unconditional promise to receive the land, but it is conditional as to how long they get to enjoy it and for what time period. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So you would expect it to follow then that you have the theme of obedience and disobedience of Israel. I've already really covered that. Um, You see that theme in uh, all of chapters 1 through 6, chapter 8. Chapters 10 through 12, really, you can almost go through any of the chapters in Joshua and find obedience and disobedience. And so what we're setting up here is in Joshua, Israel is generally speaking more obedient. But what we're setting up is that when they flip-flop in the book of Judges and become generally more disobedient, you're going to see um, the Lord disciplining them the way that he promised he would. And then the last theme Kind of a side theme here, but it it does become important, and that is God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated or illustrated in Joseph. Genesis 50, 20 through 26. These are the last three verses of the whole book of Genesis. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That phrase, a coffin in Egypt, is how the book of Genesis ends. So what does that tell you? It tells you you're looking for hope. You're looking for something in the future. Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's 400 years later. That's the faithfulness of God. And then Joshua twenty four thirty two to put the final bow on this. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So Joseph, literally, his body, his bones, become almost like a, uh, a, a torch that is handed off from generation to generation to demonstrate the faithfulness of God. That the bones of Joseph are only going to make it home if God's people make it home. Does that make sense? And so the book of Joshua just carries this, this beautiful thread along. I heard an entire sermon once on the bones of Joseph. And it was inspiring to me because it, it spoke of how God, even in these little ways, is so very, very faithful. And of course, why would Joseph care about where he's buried? And probably most of us don't. He didn't care about where he was buried. Joseph cared about where he would be resurrected. And he wanted to be resurrected home. And that's where he will be. So what's the purpose of Joshua? A couple of hot terms in here. Yahweh gave the land of Canaan to Israel through, here's the first one, holy war in accordance with his promise to Abraham and Israel dwelt in part of the land according to her faithful obedience to Yahweh. Yahweh gave the land of Canaan to Israel through holy war in accordance with his promise to Abraham and Israel and Israel dwelt in part of the land according to her faithful obedience to Yahweh. Two hot terms, holy war and part of the land. So we've got to take some time on these. We want to take uh, some time on the interpretive issues. Real quick, though, we'll do the literary structure. It's pretty simple. 
take the land, distribute the land, and retain the land. Taking the land, first 12 chapters, that's the, that's the part we generally think of uh, the book of Joshua, all the battles and the, the war that happened in Canaan. Distributing the land, probably a little less exciting. This, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. And then retaining the land, Joshua's instructions, his exhortations to be faithful. So taking the land, distributing the land, retaining the land. I'm going to go ahead and move on because we have a lot to do in interpretive issues, but you can get the slides online if you're still taking notes. Interpretive issues. Here's the big one. Why did God say to kill all the Canaanites? He uses phrases like, show them no mercy. He says, kill the women, kill the children. So why does he do this? Well, there's basically two potential reasons. The first one we would call radical discontinuity. And I think this is the prevailing view of American evangelicalism, whether they know it or not, that somehow the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And that's a, that's a fallback explanation. That's sort of a, a default. Well, I can't fully understand this. So, you know, the God of the Old Testament just was mad. And in the New Testament, now he's in a better mood or something along those lines. Is that true? Well, if you read the New Testament, there's a couple of things we can point out. First of all, Jesus promised to judge. He said in John chapter 5, I believe it is, that the Father has given all judgment to him. And if you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the bloodiest book in all of the Bible. I mean, it makes the conquest of Canaan look like uh, an amateur hour here. Revelation has a ton of blood and it's all instigated by God, by Yahweh. Revelation 6 the whole purpose of all the judgments that happen in Revelation 6 is that the world will know that the day of the Lord has come. In some of our circles, dispensational circles, uh, particularly in years past, maybe not so much anymore, um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of attempts to kind of exegete the newspaper, and I hate that. We don't want to do that. You don't, you, don't study the, you don't study the news to find out what's happening in the Bible. That doesn't make any sense. But... The basic question is, are we living in the end times? That's always been the question. And then somebody, well, there was an earthquake in Chile um, and then there's a tornado in Kansas. And so maybe we're living in the end times. Can I put it this way? When we're in the end times, there won't be any doubt whatsoever. When you look out your window and 100 pound hailstones are falling, you know, I'm thinking this is the end times. Um, When one half of humanity dies from Revelation 6, Following? Okay, I think that we're in the end times. Um, Some have gone crazy with coronavirus, saying, well, we're in the end times. No, we just live in a sinful world and a lot of people got sick. That's not the end times. Um, Now, we won't be here for all of that. That's a whole other topic for, for another day. But to say that the God of the Old Testament is somehow the angry, judgmental God and the God of the New Testament is the kinder, gentler God is absolutely untrue and denigrates God completely. So we would reject the radical discontinuity view. When God says to kill all the Canaanites, that view cannot be correct. The only other option we have is that God has a right to do as he pleases in his holiness. He has a right to do as he pleases in his holiness. And I want to consider some issues here. If I can get my remote to work. There we go. Some issues to consider. We'll give you 10 of them. First of all, God had promised the land to Israel. It was his land. It, it was his. At the same time, he was judging the Canaanites for their sin. This is a holy God bringing forth his holy purposes through the conquest. It was proper at this point of time, and it was his timing to bring his judgment. It was his decision. Chapter 11 of Joshua tells us that the majority of Canaanites did not repent and they knew about Yahweh. They knew about God and yet they didn't repent. This was not um, something where God is destroying people in their ignorance. Uh, I've heard it characterized that, boy, if the Canaanites had just been given the opportunity to know God, uh, then they, they would have repented. Let me tell you, and we'll go over this here in a moment. You remember that Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? You remember that? 
you know there was another purpose for that? Think about, uh, I've got to put some puzzle pieces here together for you. On, on Christmas Eve, we looked at Joshua chapter 5, and Rahab, she told the spies that all of the people of Canaan have been in terror because of the Red Sea crossing. How long ago before the conquest was the Red Sea crossing? 40 years. They've been living in dread of God's people for 40 years. They've had 40 years to repent. They've had 40 years to, I mean, they could pack up their belongings and go meet Israel out in the wilderness and say, hey, we're with you. But they didn't. And so this is not as if God caught some poor, innocent Canaanites off guard. They knew about Israel. They knew about Yahweh. They knew he was the singular, sole, living God. It's the second issue to consider. God will someday again deal with all nations. How? Through Israel. Again, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, Satan is released from the abyss and he will deceive the nations to come against which city? Jerusalem. And they'll be destroyed by whom? By Israel. Once again. There's a third issue to consider. God waged war against sin and evil. He always has done that. He's always waged war against sin and evil. This is true in the New Testament as well. We're not involved in the physical battle. We do not wage war against what? Flesh and blood. But we can read the Old Testament with disgust and be anti-war, anti-battle, so to speak, and yet be spiritually asleep and not engaged in the spiritual battle that, that rages around us right now. Anybody who thinks that coronavirus is about the virus, is got, you've got your head in the sand. Spiritually speaking, coronavirus is not about the virus. Coronavirus is about a spiritual battle in the church of Jesus Christ. That has been a major battleground. And what we've seen is a clear division. Those who see the church as the elevated bride of Christ and those who see the church as no more than a bar, a casino, or a restaurant. That has been the battleground. And so we do, we are in the middle of a battle. It's just not a physical battle right now. It will be again in the future. Fourth issue to consider, God is always just and perfectly just in what he did. So to say I don't agree with God saying you should kill all the women and the children is to say that God is not just. If you say God is not just, then I don't know how you can be saved because now you're denigrating the character of God and you can't be saved by a God that you don't like. That, that makes sense to us, I think. Here's a fifth issue to consider. The New Testament never teaches that warfare in and of itself is wrong. Did you know that? When they, people will say, well, in the New Testament, God is a God of peace. Not necessarily. The New Testament never teaches that war is wrong. God himself is a warrior. Romans 13, that uh, a legitimate government bears the sword. What are you supposed to do with a sword? Are you supposed to hand out social programs with a sword? No, you kill bad people with a sword. That's what the government is supposed to do. And so the New Testament doesn't teach that this was wrong. Sixth issue to consider are the practices of the Canaanites. Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 tells us what they did. They offered their children to Molech. One of the ways they offered their children was to heat up a metal statue until it was white hot and then take a living infant and place it in the metal arms of this statue of Molech and let it scream and burn itself to death. They would take children alive, bury them in large stone jars or, or ceramic jars and bury them in the ground as an offering in hopes of fertility and bury their own children alive. They had sexual perversions beyond belief, including homosexuality, which God condemns them for. They were into witchcraft. They had mediums. They had necromancers trying to speak to the dead. This was a wicked, dark, depraved, backward people. Spiritually speaking, they deserved everything that they got. The seventh issue to consider, God saved repentant Canaanites. There weren't very many of them. The one example we have is Rahab of Jericho. Um, it follows that perhaps there were others, but Rahab is certainly our example. An eighth issue and this one is tough for us. This is very, very difficult. The Canaanite children. And we say, how could God tell Israel to kill children? 
What is the spiritual assumption you're making, the presupposition when you say that that's wrong? You're supposing that children are spiritually innocent. Are they? No, they're not. They are born guilty before God. And on top of that, God can do with those children what he likes. Um, There's another place, I believe it's in the book of Ezekiel, where God speaks of the children that are killed in battle and he calls them my children. God is certainly capable of claiming the souls of those children. But what happened to the Canaanite children who were allowed to live? You know what they grew up to be? Canaanite adults who were a thorn in the side of Israel for generation after generation after generation. They became ultimately worthless human beings. And I know that's very difficult for us to to think about, but um, just as an illustration, what would have been different in history had Hitler died as a child? How much life would have been saved? The Canaanite children who were allowed to live didn't grow up to repent. In in a very small way, um, some of us were in Israel a few years ago and I saw this illustrated. We were on the Temple Mount and there was a whole group of children. They were little Muslim children and they were all being taught. And our tour guide was telling us some things and he was speaking in hushed tones and he used the word Jesus just a little bit too loudly. And those kids immediately started shouting, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. Allah is great. And we walked by them and a couple of them threw some rocks and threw stones. These kids were probably five years old and they were already taught and trained that the God of the Bible is to be hated and the people of the God of the Bible are to be hated. What were they training those little children to be? They're training them to grow up and to hate Christ, hate Christians, hate God. There's a ninth issue. God is sovereign and he knows the whole picture. We don't. So when God says kill the women and the children, we let that be okay. We let God be God, which is an irony. We don't let God do anything, but I'm saying in our hearts, we, we allow the sovereignty of God to reign And then finally, a tenth issue to consider. I have noticed, and this is more of an anecdotal, uh, I I think, observation. The same people who have a problem with Joshua tend to also have a problem with church discipline. They also tend to have a problem with male leadership in the church. And they tend to have a problem with the authority, the inspiration, and the inerrancy of Scripture. That all those things go hand in hand. The church of Jesus Christ has been, can I put it this way, feminized. And the leadership, the view of God has been feminized as well. And so we understand that when God says kill the women and the children, that is, that is God. That's who he is in that moment. That's not the dark side of God. That's not the bad side of God. God is always good. Everything he does is good and is perfect. And so we don't feminize God and we don't feminize the church by trying to soften God. Who are we to edit God and to say, I I think God, as he's presented in the Bible, is a little too harsh. So we're going to soften that just a little bit, soften the edges somewhat. So I wanted to make certain that we understand that God's right to do as he pleases in his holiness is paramount. And so you read Joshua with your your jaw down and your head down and with a great and tremendous awe for a God who could do this to you. And we praise God that he hasn't. Another interpretive issue, the big one here, another big one is the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember I said in the purpose, Yahweh gave the land of Canaan to Israel through holy war in accordance with his promise to Abraham and Israel dwelt in part of the land. Well, that sounds anticlimactic, doesn't it? Like, wow, all these battles and everything, we didn't even get everything. Well, let's talk about this. The two choices, is, the two choices are either the land promised to Abraham was completely fulfilled or it was not completely fulfilled. Completely fulfilled, Joshua twenty-one forty-three through 45 says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. 
And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That sounds completely fulfilled. Or is it not completely fulfilled? That Yahweh gave Israel the land, but Israel failed to completely possess the land. So let's do the same as we did with others. Let's do some points to consider here. First of all, what was the land promised to Abraham? And if you've been at Grace for any period of time, we've talked about this probably three or four or five times. Genesis 15, 18 through 21. This is the land. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now let me stop right there. That's a very easy um, geographical thing to picture. The river of Egypt, the Nile, picture it down here. Israel as it is right now is right here. The Euphrates is up here. And then the rest of Genesis 15 lists boundaries that are all in here. And we said this a, a, a week or two ago, the land that Israel has today is somewhere between five and eight times smaller than the land promised to Israel, to Abraham. Another issue to consider. From God's perspective, all the land already belongs to Abraham and his descendants. It already belongs to them. Whether they possessed it or not yet is irrelevant. God reaffirmed this with Joshua. Joshua 1, 3, and 4. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread Upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as to the great river, the river Euphrates, all the way to the, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. So, all the land already belongs to God. It's already there. And you might say, well, but they're not in it. It doesn't matter. It still belongs to them. If you own a rental house, just because you're not living in it, doesn't mean it doesn't belong to you. It's still yours. Here's a third issue to consider. We do have to acknowledge the historical reality. The land possessed in Joshua 13 through 20, it falls short. Now, chapters 18, 19, and 20 tell us why. It takes into account that Israel didn't live up to conquering the Canaanites. They stopped short. They didn't do their part. We also see a fourth issue here is that, and this is a key issue, the immediate complete possession was conditional. The immediate complete possession was conditional. Deuteronomy 19. Moses is setting up cities of refuge and he set aside three of them. Deuteronomy 3 on one side of the Jordan. Deuteronomy 19, 8 and 9. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three. So in other words, the land promises to Abraham are unconditional. Israel will possess the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. But the immediate possession was conditional. And in fact, how did they first disobey? I said the book of Joshua is generally obedient. Israel is generally obedient, but it kind of ends anticlimactically. They don't finish the job. They don't finish driving out the tribes before them that they were supposed to. The fifth issue to consider, God will eventually give all the promised land to Israel. The Torah, the Pentateuch, and Joshua has numerous examples, though, of Israel time after time forsaking the Lord, sinning against them nationally, so they don't get all of it yet. Let me put it in terms we can understand. You have children, and let's just go into fantasy world for a minute, and let's pretend that you have millions and millions of dollars, okay? And these millions of dollars, you are going to give to your children, well, and where else are you going to give it? Maybe the Grace Bible Church Building Fund, but none of you are old enough here for me to ask you for that. So you're going to give it to your children. But one of your kids, when he's 17, is just a knucklehead. And you know this kid isn't going to amount to anything. He's going to need an extra two decades to grow up. So you get your trust or your will and you change the terms. Yes, he will get his inheritance, but not until he turns 40. Why? 
because he's being a knucklehead, because he's a sinner. And so the eventual promise is unconditional, but the immediate fulfillment is conditional. Does that kind of make sense? That's exactly what God did here. They're not getting all of it yet. By the way, Israel never conquered the coastland. Do you know what the most expensive real estate on planet Earth today is? Is the coast of Israel. You, you can't buy a square inch of land there. It is absolutely the greatest land on earth um, as far as value, and they didn't take it. it. It's as if Israel said, hey, look at all these rocks in this wilderness. We'll keep that, and the, this beachfront property, we'll just let the Philistines have that. That's just pure laziness. There's a sixth issue to consider. Well, maybe there isn't. There we go. Israel demonstrated a lack of faith in Yahweh's ability to protect them and to lead them. Canaanites, listen carefully to this um, kind of this structure here. The Canaanites had chariots and horses in the coastal areas. So there's Canaanites. The Philistines came and they dislodged the Canaanites from the coastal areas. Historically, Egypt, which by now is weaker than Israel in military strength, defeated the Philistines who had defeated the Canaanites. And yet Israel was afraid of the Canaanites. In other words, out of Israel, the Canaanites, Philistines, and Egypt, number one was Israel. Number four were the Canaanites. And yet they were afraid. The Canaanites come out as number four. I'm sorry, Israel came out as number four. They should have been number one. Joshua 2 tells us that the Canaanites had spent 40 years in dread of Israel when they heard about the Red Sea. Joshua 2.11, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's Rahab talking to the spies. What does one team like to do to another team before they ever play the game? They want to intimidate them, Right? They want to make them scared because they will not perform well if they're scared. The Canaanites had had 40 years to be scared. Remember we talked about this on Christmas Eve. Why were the slum areas between the two big walls in Joshua, why were those built up? Because those were all the people who were scared living out in the villages. They moved in because they needed protection. They wanted protection. And so Israel demonstrated a lack of faith in Yahweh's ability to protect them and lead them. So what would be our good conclusion here? Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. This represents and emphasizes the finished deal. That God was faithful. Israel could have in faith taken the rest of the land. They, they could have done that. God did his part. And so the way we would put this is that everything is on track so far. It's on track so far. Israel failed to completely obey, so they failed to completely possess the land. And so from God's perspective, the covenant-keeping God, he was faithful. So they get a restricted version. But even this, of course, is going to be taken from them eventually. Not for all time, but it will be taken from them for a time. God is the covenant-keeping God. Israel turns out to be the covenant-breaking people. And so what happens in the future Well, now, before Israel will ever possess the land promised to Abraham, God will have to change their hearts. National Israel will have to await the new covenant when, as a nation, they'll embrace uh, Christ as Christ returns. Zechariah 12.10 tells us this. That's when the land will be possessed. Let's do one more. This is more of an interesting little topic here, and that is, what do we do with the lie of Rahab? We talked about this Sunday night. Remember when the king of Jericho sent his men to Rahab's house? He had heard that the spies were there and Rahab said, oh no, I, I, they left a long time ago when in fact she had hidden them up on her roof under the, the flax, under the, the grain. So what do we do with this? There's a, there's a number of views of the lie of Rahab. Some would say that the lie is a lesser sin in response to rebellion against God, which is a greater sin. Well, that still makes it a sin, so we have a problem there. Others would say that deceit is a part of the ethics of war. That uh, the, the 
the, the reason she had to deceive is because all's fair in love and what? War. And so that, that made it okay. Others would say, well, it wasn't actually a lie. Rahab's words are not a lie. Well, that, that can't be true. She said the spies left. They hadn't left. I don't know what else you call it. Others uh, give kind of a end around sort of, well, we're just going to avoid the issue. They'll say, well, the emphasis is on Rahab's testimony, not on her lie. No, it's a pretty good lie right there. It's, it's right there. What do we do with this? I think the best view is simply to say that her faith is commended. The lie is not condoned, but her faith is commended. A couple of issues to think about with this. Yes, she lied, and yes, God blessed her. Those are just facts, and they live side by side. The lie isn't condoned, but her faith is rewarded. So here's the, here's the irony. Rahab had been a Baal worshiper. She had been a worshiper of the Canaanite gods. What did her lie indicate about her faith? Her lie indicated she had changed allegiances and now she was loyal to Yahweh. And so in a very strange sense, her lie was an indicator that her faith was real. I I can't even wrap my mind around that, but that's the truth. It's like the man who repented by telling God in prayer, God, I have been a big, and then puts a whole bunch of expletives in there. Okay, that is a sinful response to a change in faith. It's a very odd little thing, but one of the things we see is the lie is not condoned, neither is it condemned. Rahab doesn't arrive in Israel and appear before Joshua and say, hey, thanks for the whole spy business, but boy, you lied. That was horrible. That doesn't happen. And so what do we say? Her faith is commended. The lie is not condoned. Anybody think of another time that uh, some women in the Bible lied because they loved God? Say it again. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus. Yeah, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, that these Hebrew women, they're vigorous. I mean, they're out in the fields and boom, the baby's born. Just don't know what to do with that. And they lied. And what did God do? He rewarded them with families of their own and with wealth. Because they were lying through their teeth all over the place, but it was for a right reason. That is a whole other topic on the issue of biblical ethics. But as far as Rahab, she did not do wrong. She did right. And so that's what we'll go with. One more little issue. I forgot there was this one. The long day. Joshua chapter 10. I am shocked, dismayed, and disappointed. How many commentaries, how many scholars I read have read in Joshua that just can't fathom the fact that the God who created the universe might be able to manipulate it also. And they give a figurative, well, it just felt like a long day. Do you think that God is smart enough to write it felt like a long day if that's all it was. I think he is. No, the sun stood still. It's literal. What does that mean? Obviously, the sun didn't stop. Somehow, the earth's rotation either stopped or I don't know how God did it, but it is literal. The, the, the day stopped. By the way, uh, just a little side note here. Um, astronomers who sit around for decades and decades doing all kinds of calculations have figured out that there is a period of time that is just somehow unaccounted for where it seems as though everything in the universe kind of stopped for about a day. And they don't know how to account for that. I don't know if that's what happened there, but um, they haven't figured that out yet. There's a lot of scientific theories for the literal side. The earth stopped rotating or the sun's light lingered. Um, We don't know how, how God did it. We don't need to know, but we do know the result. The result was that God responded to Joshua so that God fought for Israel to allow them to complete the destruction of the armies that were fleeing from them. And so the issue here is not whether or not we can explain it, but whether we believe it. Let me be very clear about this. If you cannot explain something in the Bible, that does not cast a shadow of doubt on the Bible. That casts a shadow of doubt on your intelligence. Does that make sense? Just because you can't explain the longest day doesn't mean that it's not true. Just because you can't explain the Red Sea parting doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you can't explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't mean it's not true. So it's not an issue of whether we can explain it or not. That's 
that's putting a pretty uh, low standard on Scripture that you who have been around for, what, three or four or five decades, uh, if you can't explain it, then it must not be true. Let's put a high value and a high standard on Scripture that if you can't explain it, that just says that there are infinite truths that you can't touch. Does that make sense? And so um, we never back off from when somebody says, well, how do you explain the longest day? Your answer is, I don't need to explain the longest day. God already did in exactly the terms that he chose. I don't have to explain the Bible. I don't have to explain or defend God. Well, yeah, I should have put a scientific footnote in here. You know, oh, look, in the appendices, it shows this chart of the stars and what happened. We don't need that. God gave us exactly the words that we need. So the issue isn't whether we can explain these things or not, but the issue is the inspiration of Scripture. Either it's inspired or it's not. And so uh, if you're having a conversation with someone and they say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, okay, what do you believe in? And they will give you a standard of some sort, and then you say, by what standard do you measure that standard? Because I don't have a way to measure that standard. And so you'll always run up against this idea that there is no right standard unless you come back to the inspired text of Scripture. That is the only standard. So, do we have to explain the long day? No. Is it literal? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, there we are with the book of Joshua. Some of the greatest uh, ethical uh, concerns that we have in all the Bible. We've got a couple of minutes, and I'd love to return to any discussion that you might have on particularly the issue of killing the Canaanites and God's judgment and all that. Anybody have any questions or comments on that particular topic? Your brains are fried from uh, eating Christmas cookies, I understand. Or any of the interpretive issues, actually, any of them. Anybody disagree? That would be fun. Nobody? Oh, come on. Yes, Janelle. How do you explain, oh, good question. How do you explain God commanding to kill the women and the children as you're reading through the Bible with your children? Let me, um, <clears throat> let me back up to a different issue first and back into that, okay? Uh, we did this, probably all of you have done this. How many of you uh, have or got children's Bibles for your kids, right? What do children's Bibles do? They edit out all the hard stuff, right? And, and I understand that. You know, you, with your three-year-old, you're not... You don't see Noah's Ark with drowning people scraping the edge of the ark. You know, they're not going to sleep at night. We understand this. And so what do you do with those very hard truths? Well, you tell them about a very, very big God who judges sin. And you can do this with a two-year-old. A two-year-old, a three-year-old can understand, you know, when mommy says to pick up your toy and you say no, why do you do that? Because of sin. And someday God is going to punish sin. So you need to, you need to love God. You need to come to faith in God. And you can use these little tiny concepts. But if you're reading through the Bible with, um, with your children. And you get to the part where God says to kill the children and the, the women. I, I don't know if you protect them from that. I don't know if you say, oh wait, we better skip that part. Because your children need to know that children die and go to hell. Children need to know that they should come to faith in God. Why would we protect them from that? The American Evangelical uh, Church has had an entire uh, system of ecclesiology that protects kids from truth. And that's why you get kids graduating from youth group that know zero Bible. And they know nothing and they get hammered by society immediately. So why would we protect children from truth? Um, so what do you do with, with your kids? You tell them God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sins. And you should want Jesus to pay for your sins so that you don't have to pay for them. These are children and women and men who paid for their own sins. And God put them to death. So you explain the gospel to them. And, and yes, it might terrify your children but tell them about the love of God and how God offers a way out of that so it should lead to gospel opportunities when we deprive our children of the 
God of judgment, we then deprive them of the fact that they need a savior. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I wouldn't say with your three-year-old that they took a sword and they cut their heads off and they, I don't think you need to do that. I think you just go to the gospel and, and explain, but the older they get, this is a reality. It's an absolutely reality. I used to work with very, very difficult children and I have seen eight-year-olds that I knew for, without, the, without God, I knew they were going to turn into just psychopathic murderers. Because they were so disturbed, so twisted in their thinking that they were worthless as human beings. They needed to be confronted by the judgment of God that was coming upon them. So does that help at all, Janelle, a little bit? Yeah, we don't protect kids from the truth. Um, we're going to give it to them in a way they can understand. But good question. That's a tough one. I'm glad I'm not dealing with that now. So, What else? Any other question? Hi, Teresa. You know, I, there, there is something, you know, when our, when our boys were little, we were all, well, we're not going to buy guns because we won't have violent kids. And so they've got sticks in the backyard shooting each other with them. Um, there's, there's something in boys that want to be warriors. It, it, it just is. Something in boys that want to be warriors. What do you teach them? <clears throat> uh, you teach them that you protect your family. You teach them that you protect your nation. Um, you teach them that law enforcement is one of the highest callings on planet Earth. Um, you teach them that good men fight for good causes. And you teach them that we live in a sinful world, therefore fighting is part of what we have to do. We fight for that which is good. Um, and uh, we, we teach them that we love our military, we love our law enforcement, and that um, meekness According to um, the, the Greek word, meekness is strength under control. That you use your strength when it's necessary. So, but we don't want to feminize our boys either. We, we want them to understand that we live in a world that requires you stand for something. And that fight may be with words. It may be with a weapon if you're in the military. But there is a fight. So um, until we live in a sinless world, we live in a world that requires that there are fighters. And that's... I mean, we, we fight a spiritual war every day. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, our, our kids have more scars from each other, but at the same time, it kind of helped make them into men too. So what else? All right. Well, um, the book of Joshua always engenders some interest, so I, I enjoy that. Uh, next time, we will be looking at um, Theology Proper 3, the divine attributes, and we'll spend a couple of weeks on divine attributes. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. I know we're between holidays. I didn't see any reason to skip BTI just because uh, uh, we happened to have Christmas a couple of days ago. So let's pray and we'll be done. Thank you, Father, for the book of Joshua. It reminds us that we worship a holy God worthy to fall on our faces before and to worship and to tremble before you. And at the same time, Lord, we are those who are like Rahab, saved from destruction, saved from our own sinful ways. And for that, we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, that we will never face your wrath. We will never face destruction. We only now benefit from your life, from your resurrection of your son, and from the new life that you have promised to us for all of eternity, Lord, that we too will enter the promised land. And we pray these things and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.